the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome once again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're plugged in here to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Uh, Let me introduce Alan Dempsey. Uh, He is the engineer who gets us on the air every weekend. Andrew Hurdliska produces the show. Brad Griffin joins me in the first segment. He's in Pasadena, California. Senior Director of Content for the Fuller Youth Institute. But we're going to talk about his new book, Three Big Questions That Change Every Teenager. Making the most of your conversations and connections. Brad, welcome to Orlando. I'm happy to join. Uh, have you join us. I am happy to be here, Pat. Thanks for having me. Uh, how did this book come about? Ooh, that is a... Probably a 20-year story, <laughs> but I'll keep it quick. You know, part of what we do at the Fuller Youth Institute is research, and we use research as a way to equip leaders, parents, anybody who cares about young people to help and support them. And we began a while back to explore some questions that were troubling a lot of folks around young people walking away from church, walking away from faith, and that that research led to some of our work um, called Sticky Faith and around what families, what churches can do to engage young people. Um, but over time, so, so that project was about actually about 10 years ago, and so over time we realized that the way that we talk about today's teenagers, Pat, it reflects a lot of the ways we talked about the last generation of teenagers and this new generation of teenagers in front of us today, Gen Z, they are, they're in a different sort of reality. And we felt like we just needed to spend time listening to today's young people to help the adults who find them mystifying, (laughs) which is most of us. (laughs) So I'll also say uh, both Kara Powell, uh, my co-author and I, our parents of teenagers, um, respectively with our spouses. We each have three uh, teenagers and young adults in our lives, uh, in our families. And so we were just very curious about this from a a very personal perspective as well. Brad, let's get right into it. Mm -hmm. First question that uh, will change every teenager. Who am I? The big question of identity. Tell us more. So identity, we understand it as our view of ourselves. And in many ways, it is it, it is the big question, right? We, we can all resonate with this question. But for, for you and I as adults, we... We probably have wrestled with this question enough that it's not one we're asking every day. It it may not even be one we're asking every month. (laughs) You know, it kind of becomes a sort of a back burner question. For teenagers, this question becomes a front burner, rolling boil question. And, And adolescence has always been a time when that when identity in particular is sort of in a season of experimentation. What was interesting in our research, and teenagers are are all different, but as we listened in our research to a diverse cross-section of teenagers across the U.S., one of the common themes we heard in the way they answer this question, who am I, is this theme of I am what others expect. I am what others want me to be or need me to be. They Teenagers feel this pressure to live up to all kinds of expectations. And, you know, that comes from all around them, from 
from their family, from their teachers, from their church. It certainly comes from social media and expectations of who they're supposed to be in that place. So one young woman told us, you know, I just really, really, really cared about what other people thought about me. And I really wanted to have the right friends and the right things. And she said, you know, I, I needed to be whatever, whatever you needed to be for you and for you and for you. And I, I think that captures the experience of a lot of teenagers. Let's go to uh, the next question. Big question. Where do I fit? The big question of belonging. That's right. So belonging is our connection with others. And and like identity, this is a big question for a lot of us. And I got to tell you, Pat, you know, sometimes I struggle with this question as an adult as well, in part because I think it was one of the questions that was most poignant for me as a young person, uh, as well as a, as a kid and as a teenager growing up, not quite feeling like I fit in. And, you know, what was interesting in our research with today's young people is this question of belonging can, can lead the way for a lot of teenagers and they uh, attach it to the sense of safety. So the most common narrative we heard as we talked with teenagers was, you know, I fit when I feel safe to be me, when I feel comfortable or with people who accept me and don't judge me. Um, Belonging is really tied to identity. There was this sense of, well, I belong when I feel like I can be my real self and not fake. And um, I think Researchers would tell us that for a lot of young people, belonging can sometimes sit in the front seat during adolescence uh, among the three questions. And I I think we heard that a lot. Now, let's get to the third question. What difference can I make? The big question of purpose. Fill us in. We all want to be significant, right? We all want to contribute. And that's our our definition of purpose is our contribution to the world. Purpose is one of those questions that sometimes it, it emerges more strongly in later adolescence. And, you know, this is kind of obvious as kids are thinking about what's going to happen after high school And if they're looking at college or their career, you know, they're starting to think about, well, how can I make a difference in the world and why am I here? What was interesting to us in our research is we heard teenagers talking a lot about helping when they talked about purpose, that there's this sense of I matter, my life matters when I'm caring for other people, when I'm making them feel good or or feel happy, Um, even when I'm being a hero, I, I talked with one young man named Armando who he wants to be seen as a hero, and he was planning a career in firefighting because he had this sense of, of you know, firefighters are respected and they help people. Um, and this helping, there's a lot about that that's beautiful and, and, and virtuous, I think we can all affirm. And there was sort of a shadow side of helping, too, this sense of I'm not significant unless I'm really helping someone out. You know, you know, this sense of uh, helping can be exhausting and it can be another way that young people feel like they have to perform in, in order to, to have approval. My guest in Pasadena California is Brad Griffin, Senior Director of Content for the Fuller Youth Institute, author of three big questions that change every teenager, making the most of your conversations and connections. We've got another segment with uh, Brad. Stay with us here. But I do want to remind you that uh, my latest book is out. It's called Revolutionary Leadership. We take a look at the 25 key leaders during the Revolutionary War period uh, who made the difference in this country even coming into existence. 
Uh, some of these leaders, of course, you will have known of, but there's some that you uh, probably wouldn't have known of, but they paid a key piece in the United States of America even becoming a country. We had no business winning that war against mighty Great Britain. But uh, over the eight-year period, uh, it happened, and we have a country today, and these leaders that you're going to read about will make a difference. So when you go up to order uh, Brad Griffin's book, Three Big Questions That Can Change Every Teenager, uh, make sure you order a copy of uh, Revolutionary Leadership as well. Uh, We're right back after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Brad Griffin has joined us from Pasadena, California. And uh, we're talking about his book, The Three Big Questions That Change Every Teenager. At the end of the book, and I'm intrigued by this, Brad, over 170 questions to ask a teenager. If you, I, I guess if you can get him to sit down long enough. <laughs> if, you, if, you right. can, if you can just corral them. But, but but how did you go about putting that together? And what are some of these key questions? I'd like to know. I've got I've got grandchildren, teenagers, a whole bunch of them, mm. and uh, I've I've got to get uh, I got to get with it. So, what are some key questions? Yeah, I, I appreciate you asking. And you know, we definitely shouldn't sit down with a teenager and ask them. 170 questions all at once. <laughs> so I don't Good. recommend that. <laughs> and in fact, so, some of us feel like we're lucky to get past the first question. I I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm pretty good at asking a first question or two. It's the question after that that I have a little more trouble with. And especially if I get sort of a one-word answer uh, from a teenager. So part of what we thought would be helpful to people because it was helpful to us is really filling the book with questions. So across the book, there are over 300 questions that you can ask a teenager. And what we put in the, in the back were the 170 questions we asked in our interviews. So as we sat with teenagers, we, we sat with each one for up to two hours over the course of um, three different sessions, so up to six hours total with those young people. And so here's the thing, Pat. I think questions are so important because listening is so important to help us move beyond our assumptions and truly connect with teenagers. We tend to make assumptions And assumptions lead to judgment, and we judge across generations all the time. We do this Mm -hmm. in all directions uh, across generations. But our our tendency is to dismiss what we experience as different by calling it wrong. And what, what we need is some questions that can help us listen in a way that makes empathy possible. And so... Sometimes, in order to do that, in order to really get to empathy, we need to take a teenager's perspective and practice some skills that help us slow down a little bit when we're likely to judge or stereotype uh, or jump to a quick conclusion. So I find that sometimes it's not even the first question. It's our response uh, that invites further Reflection. So, for example, I think every adult should keep in their hip pocket this phrase, tell me more, Mm. tell me more. Three simple words, right? But those three words can cause, can stop me from giving my quick response, which is sometimes judgmental or sometimes just an answer when an answer is actually what they need first. Tell me more creates a little bit of space in the conversation. It's like a question without asking a question. (laughs) And I think sometimes phrases like that can help create the kind of space where teenagers can share a little bit more beyond their one or two word answer. Mm. Um, And and that can help us get to the place. You know, we, 
chances are good. We're talking with a teenager because we care about them. You know, you're thinking about your grandkids. You love them, and you you want to hear them and support them, and and you want to be part of their discipleship journey. And we believe that as we listen well and ask good questions, we can actually get to the questions that are under the question, because these big questions of identity, belonging, and purpose, they're usually a little bit under the surface. And so it, it, it may not be the first question that a teenager is asking, but it might be sort of the question beneath the question. I will remember that phrase, uh, Brad, or that little question. Tell me more. Mm-hmm. It's not even a question. It's uh, just a, requ- it's a, re- it's a request. Brad, uh, I, I have another one, Pat. Please. I'll give you one more. Yes. Yes. And it's, um, this is a phrase I think we can cut from our vocabulary. And that is when I was your age. Now, here's the thing. I think it's really valuable to tell our own stories. And it's really valuable for us to share our, our own experiences. But that particular phrase, when I was your age, it rarely precedes an empathetic response. You know, you, you think about the, the tone in our voice when we, when we say those words. They're often critical and judgmental. And instead, we can, we can listen and wonder with them. You know, I wonder what it's like to be a teenager today. Um, you know, I, I wonder what it's like to have your phone with you all the time. Um, I wonder what it's like to uh, constantly feel like you have to respond to other people. You know, when I didn't have that same experience when I was younger. Um, And that can help us get out of that sort of judgmental space into a space of really wanting to learn from the young people in front of us. Do you think, uh, Brad, that uh, teenagers today are sharper more attuned, uh, intellectually beyond what we've had in the past? What do you think? That's a great question. I would say it a little differently. I think they are more sophisticated. Mm. And by sophisticated, I mean they have access to so much more information. They have so much more exposure to the world, to culture, One of the words that we've used to describe this generation in the book is adaptive. They've had to adjust creatively and and with a lot of agility to so many new needs and opportunities around them. You know, just think about changing technology since this generation was born. They've grown up in, as the smartphone generation, where touch screens were always part of their reality and where they always expected a screen to connect with the broader world. So I do think there's some reality about, you know, their, their brains have been wired a little differently because of all the stimuli in their, in their lives that, that are different. And so I think that leads to a kind of sophistication. It does not necessarily lead to more maturity. And that's where, as adults, we have so much to offer from our experience and hopefully our maturity to walk with them, because quite honestly, they they live in a in a state of being overwhelmed by all that comes at them, and so that sophistication, you know, it needs maturity to come alongside it to really. Um, I'm interested, Brad, in uh, Mountainside Communion. You're the youth pastor, family ministries. What's going on in families today, Brad? What are you hearing? What are you seeing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm so privileged to serve in my church alongside my role at the Fuller Youth Institute. And families right now are feeling pretty overwhelmed and exhausted. And the more I talk to and listen to parents, the more I think, 
parents and families, whoever's raising kids, grandparents who are raising their, their grandkids, I think they need the church more than ever to show up and be a community who surrounds them with support and with care. And I think in our society right now, we've lost so many of these structures of support. And especially coming out of this last year and a half and, and all we've been through as a country, as a world, I think this is such a beautiful and important time for the church to be the church to one another across generations and to acknowledge, you know, when you see that parent, especially a parent of a, of a teenager or a parent of a younger kid, you know, chances are good. They're exhausted. They are, um, they might be at their wit's end and they have a lot sort through that's, that's confusing. It's confusing to be a teenager today. It's confusing to be a parent today. And it, it has been just so much. So I think, I think all of us um, really need to kind of up our level of, of care for each other and find ways to care for those who've been um, parenting and, and grandparenting and, and giving care to kids and teenagers. I want you to, uh, Brad, just expand on this a little bit. There's a, we talk about teenagers but there's a difference between a 13-year-old and a 17-year-old, obviously. Yeah. So how, how does a parent begin to transition to a 17-year-old who wants freedom, who, who wants to be able to have their own life? And yet many times... Pat, you're speaking to my daily reality. So I, really? So in my own home... I have a 13-year-old, a 16-year-old, and a 19-year-old. Mm. And so we are in a beautiful year of all teenage uh, realities, but those developmental stages are, are, are absolutely different. And one of the, the things that's important to keep in mind is that, as you hinted, Kids need a different type of parent at those different stages of adolescence. Mm -hmm. And they need us to be there and they need us to be consistent and supportive and, um, and to be parents. And that 13 year old needs a whole lot more support, guidance, coaching, teaching. The 16 year old needs boundaries around their emerging freedom and they need the uh, sense that that home is still a safe landing place while they're stretching out. Um, you know, and that 19 year old is really wanting to develop autonomy and become an adult decision maker. And in those, in those years, 17, 18, 19, we have to shift into more of a coaching and cheering kind of role from a, um, you know, from a role that's more boundary setting and guiding. And I got to say that one of the hardest parts for me as a parent is giving up this sense of control. I say sense of control because I think while we can be controlling, you know, control is very much an illusion <laughs> as a parent. But as our kids are entering that phase of, got to learn to make decisions on their own quite honestly sometimes that means they need to learn to make mistakes on their own and to live with some of the consequences of those mistakes but we have to make sure we are not um, uh, just releasing them to to the wild so to speak too soon so i think that's quite a dance in the teenage years but it is important for, for especially with a 17, 18 year old to understand, you know, if they're pushing back on you, they're pushing back on, on their boundaries, that's really normal because they're, they're in this phase of individuating and, and trying to, to get some autonomy. Um, and that can spark a really good conversation about the kinds of support they need, maybe the ways some of the boundaries need to shift, um, that, that we can begin together to coach 
our older kids. And, and that takes a different skill set. I've been working on that different skill set myself. Brad Griffin has been our guest, author of three big questions that change every teenager. Here they are again. Who am I? The big question of identity. Number two, where do I fit? The big question of belonging. Number three, what difference can I make? The big question of purpose. Our thanks to Brad Griffin, author of three big questions that change every teenager. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Stay with us. We've got more. Brad Griffin, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, Three Big Questions That Change Every Teenager. Brad was in Pasadena, California. Well, we go from Pasadena to the Chicago area where we found James Ward, pastor and founder of Insight Church in Skokie, Illinois. His book is out. It's called Zero Victim, Overcoming Injustice with a New Attitude. James, welcome to Orlando. I hope things are well with you. Hey, Pat. Thanks for having me. Things are very well. Hope the same for you. And I'm really, really honored to, to be with you. So thank you, and thanks for the amazing, amazing work that you're doing there. James, why was it important to write this book? It, it was important to me um, not only as an opportunity to, to share my life story, um, but to really communicate that a new way of thinking. I believe that America, we've come to an impasse um, and that we need a new attitude. We need a new perspective about the challenges that we're dealing with in life. And um, a message that the Lord has, you know, planted in my heart is something that began in third, third grade, um, you know, through some of the events last year, began to really spread across the nation. And I believe that this zero victim mindset, which is the mindset of Christ himself, is the only way for us to really push the reset button on um, not only race relations, but the effects of COVID and all of the challenges that we're facing. Um, the, the mind is a battlefield, and we have to start there, for example, as Romans 12, 2 says, by being transformed by the renewing of our mind. Um, America needs this message right now, I believe, and we're, we're blessed to have the opportunity to share it. James, as we dive into the meat of your book, let's start right here. Mm-hmm. Taking personal responsibility. What are you, what are you telling us there? You know, you know, Pat. You if you've flown an airplane, anyone who's flown an airplane, you know that the uh, the flight attendants tell you to put on your oxygen mask first. You know, if in the event that there's a crisis or an emergency, you can't help the passengers around you if you're not breathing. And so, uh, starting with our own heart, our own mindset, our own mindset is so important. Um, that idea of seeing to it that our thinking is is correct, to see to it that our emotions have been healed. Um, again, sometimes I say that victories are won in the battlefield of our heart and our mind first. And if we don't address those things and we become, as Jesus says, like the blind leading the blind. Um, I write about that very, very quickly in the book. Uh, we've all heard the phrase life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, Pat, I think the order has to be changed. Uh, to liberty, the pursuit of happiness and life. Everything begins with freedom. And once a person is free, then they can mobilize to pursue happiness. And that leads to the life that we all desire to live. Um, So taking responsibility is a very important step in this process. Next topic I want you to talk about. The world is a hostile place. It sure is. You know, one person that, that, um, one personality I should say that does not discriminate, uh, Pat, is the devil. You know, mm-hmm. people discriminate, but Satan does not. He does not care about your ethnicity, your, your gender. He doesn't care about your religious beliefs. Um, he's the enemy of us all out to destroy us all. And because we live in a fallen world, um, I say that the world is, is perfectly designed to produce victims out of all of us. The world is a hostile place. And because of that, we have to anticipate problems. We have to anticipate injustice and, um, you know, not be, you know, taken by surprise when challenges happen in this life. But the more we can precondition our mind, you know, victim thinking is a conditioned mindset to see yourself as a loser or the victim of 
uh, injustice or the negative thoughts, words, or actions of other people. Zero victim mindset is a preconditioned mindset. You literally prepare your mind to deal with the challenges, the hostilities, the injustice, and the offenses of life before they happen, which certainly, you know, increases the opportunity for you to be victorious when dealing with those things. Topic number four, James, James Ward, our guest, ideological and emotional warfare. Uh, What's going on here? Sure. I introduced this concept um, in the book. You know, it was first heard about during the days of, uh, you know, uh, Saddam Hussein, this term weapons of mass destruction. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll pat, I write in the book about emotional weapons of mass destruction, not WMBs, but EWMBs. I believe that we're dealing with emotional weapons of mass destruction in society that we've fallen from fact to feeling. Um, the basis of critical race theory, cancel culture, political correctness, the soil from which those things grow is victim thinking. It's the woundedness of people, this ideological and emotional warfare that's happening in our society. Even right now, emotions have been weaponized, emotions have been politicized, and I believe that politicians have discovered that if you can get people to feel a certain way, you can get them to vote a certain way. And even as a pastor, I've recognized that emotions often are so much more powerful than intellect, which is why uh, folks sometimes fall in love with people that they know are not good for them because emotions are so powerful. Emotions are being weaponized and politicized today, and it's destroying our society. It's a new kind of warfare taking place in the the American soil. You're listening to James Ward from Skokie, Illinois, the book Zero Victim. James, you get into this topic. My identity as a Christian black American man. Uh, I I need you to expand on that. Sure. You know, and I I specifically chose the order there concerning my identity as a Christian, black American man. Everything starts with me as a as a as a child of God, as a son of God. Um, You know, how do we allow something that's insignificant in color, uh, something that's point zero five millimeters thick to become so significant and defining our way of life? And for those of us who are believers, first knowing that I am a Christian before I am a black man. You know, Pat, that has freed me from the effects of racism in this world. Um, I tell our congregation because the love of God in me is greater than the hatred and the and the grand wizard of the KKK or whoever he is. I love him because God's love in me is greater. And so racism simply has no effect on me. You know, the Bible says no weapon formed against you will prosper. Well, you know what? Racism is a weapon, and it does not prosper. It does not work against me because of my Christian identity. After that, you know, I'm certainly a, a black man. I'm a citizen of the United States of America. And I think we have to return to uh, the, the understanding of our identity, again, to not allow these emotional weapons of mass destruction to define and destroy us, even as people groups. We've got to go back to the, the root and the core of our identity and knowing who we are. James, tell us about this topic, Black Man, White Police. That narrative is all over our society now. Uh, that that pretty much the only time you hear about um, injustice, it has something to do with a white police officer and a black man. Um, you know, of course, we got you know police officers whose um, you know whose hearts are not right and who are uh, practicing evil things. You know, Pat, we have pastors like myself, unfortunately, and priests whose hearts have been affected by sin. And so again, the devil does not discriminate. But I write about my, my incidents, a uh, few incidents in my own life when I've had encounters with uh, white police officers, and I explain how the zero-victim mindset helped me through those situations to navigate them differently to change the outcome. In one situation, my encounter with a white police officer ended with me uh, praying for him and his family and his friends. It was because I responded and saw myself you know, as, as being zero-victim and not a victim. In another situation, I had a hostile situation that, that took place that could have escalated into something uh, that would have been unfortunate for me. But again, the power of zero-victim thinking, uh, the power to act and not react to circumstances can really diffuse those situations. Again, I believe that both police officers and black men and all citizens need to understand the power of zero-victim thinking, as I describe it in the book. James, then you go on to this topic. Victim thinking has infected society. How has that happened? How has it happened? It's infected 
you know, society in three three ways. I like to say there's three kinds of laws that are very important to understand. That every society is governed by three kinds of laws: spiritual law, moral law, and civil law. We're only familiar with civil law, which is really the weakest kind of law. Spiritual law and moral law is what our nation has abandoned. The more we move away from faith in God, human consciousness goes with him. And so we're seeing a situation right now that immorality and a lack of spirituality is really contributing to the problems in our society, have infected our society, and civil law cannot fix those problems. Here's why. You cannot legislate morality. Civil law cannot make people better people. And so we've got to come back to the influence of the gospel, the church being the salt and the light of the world to prevent uh, darkness and decay. Uh, Society has been infected by victim thinking, and we need to restore this zero-victim way of thinking, which is the heart of God and the mind of Christ to, to to our civilization, to our society. You write a whole chapter about examples of zero victim thinkers. Uh, what, what do you write about? I'll, I'll write about the greatest zero victim thinker, who is who is Jesus Christ. And I explain it this way, you know, Pat. Um, the greatest injustice in a society where we're always talking about injustice—that is what people are calling for right now. Is injustice. They want to see justice. And the greatest example of zero victim thinking. The only innocent man that ever lived on the planet, who was Jesus Christ, suffered the greatest injustice that the world has ever known. He was crucified for my sins and the sins of other people, not his own. But, Pat, think about this. While Jesus was still in the act of being victimized and the nails were still being driven in his hand, Pat, he's already praying, Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's praying for forgiveness while the injustice is still taking place. And that is the standard for forgiveness. That is the standard for love in terms of how we respond to injustice in our society. There are many calls for justice. There are never calls for forgiveness. There are never calls for the love of God. And anything less than being crucified on the cross is a lesser infraction, a lesser injustice that can be dealt with by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he gives us the greatest example of how to not be a victim. And if we apply that across our society, I really believe we have a tremendous chance to see change and to see healing across America. James Ward is with us from the Chicago area. His book, Zero Victim, Overcoming Injustice with a New Attitude. Topic nine, James, five steps to begin the mental process. Prepare yourself, you tell us. Mm -hmm. Very quick step number one is to know your environment. We talked about before, I write early in the book that the world is a hostile place. When I enter into an environment, whether it's a, a workspace or a community or a social space, I have to assess the, envi- the environment to identify the pitfalls of victimization. Number two, we need to know ourselves. That pitfalls of victimization not only exist externally, many times victimization exists internally because of moral moral injuries or uh, wounds that have happened in our own life, you know, some traumatic event. And so we need to know our environment. Number two, we need to know ourselves, know our tendencies. Number three, we have to secure the necessary support and help that we need. I want to be America's zero victim coach, America's zero victim pastor to help folks recover uh, and to know that they can change and have a turnaround from the unfortunate situations that they've uh, faced. That is why I wrote the book. Number four, I talk about the importance of preconditioning your mind. Again, we live in a hostile world. Challenges are going to come, but you have to prepare for them. Don't pretend that they don't exist. Prepare for them. Study. Get yourself in a position so that you can deal with them effectively. And number five, I talk about this last step in the book of envisioning your victory. See the outcome and then begin to work your way backwards. That will begin to give you the the appropriate steps that you, you can take to see your way out of the challenges and the pitfalls of victimization that an individual may be living in. James, you tell us that responding to injustice is a skill. Uh, Tell us more. Sure. So I use an analogy, a very powerful analogy. When I say that responding to injustice is a skill, I use the analogy of baseball. So, Pat, think about this. Let's just call the pitcher is a very, very bad guy. I mean, if you throw... A, an object that is that is as hard as a brick at 100 miles an hour mm. at another individual, you are not a good person. And so <laughs> let's just say the catcher can potentially be victimized by the pitcher throwing these objects. That is a life-threatening ordeal. 
But look at the catcher. A few things. He postures and positions himself the right way. Number two, the catcher anticipates the pitch. Number three, the catcher puts on the right equipment to protect himself. And so what could be a life-threatening situation with the pitcher throwing a 100-mile-an-hour bullet at this guy now becomes enjoyable. It becomes manageable because the catcher has the skill set to posture himself the right way. He's anticipating the problem, but he's also put, it, put, it, put on the right equipment to protect himself. If we deal with injustice and problems the, the same way that a catcher manages a pitch and we develop that skill set, you know, it is very possible, Pat, for us to begin to go through life and to really not have any bad days because we've learned the skill set of how to manage the challenges that life will always bring to us. James Ward, he's our guest, and he's a good one. The book, Zero Victim, Overcoming Injustice with a New Attitude. We're back with James Ward. First, these messages, though, on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando, we will return. James Ward has authored Zero Victim. He's with us from Skokie, Illinois. James, here's the next topic for you. Hear no victim. See no victim. Be no victim. Fill us in. Yes. So, you know, Pat, our lives are are shaped most by what we see and what we hear. Those things have a, a way of developing and shaping our mindset, uh, shaping the, the, the disposition of our heart. And we live in a victim-minded culture. Um, something as practical as, as the words that we speak, words that have been spoken over us. We're in a society that we talk negative. We speak negative to each other. We've, uh, in many situations, grown up in a home where we've heard negative things if we listen to the media uh, talking about the race and the racism, you would think that every black person hates every white person, every white person hates every black person. If you listen to all of the negativity that inundates our society, it begins to formulate our mindset and formulate our sentiments. And so we have to hear no victim talk, see no victim talk. If we can really begin to close the gates of our hearts and our minds. Proverbs 23 says, guard your heart, for out of it flows the issues of life. If we can control the negative information that comes to us uh, concerning victim thinking, then it would, it would put us in a position that we won't feel and perceive ourselves as a victim when we begin to manage the kind of information that's been really, really uh, uh, thrown at us by broadcast media, by the social media, by the culture in which we live in, we're living. We really have to begin to monitor what we see and what we hear in our lives. James, I want you to tell us about the effects and effects of living in a hostile world. Sure. I talk about the importance of trajectory. Every, every person's life has a certain trajectory, has a disposition that my life uh, is moving in a certain direction. I have certain tendencies. And our life is filled with a series of effects and effects. And let me explain the, the difference. Um, you know, Pat, if I insult you with my words, the effect of me speaking uh, negatively or offending you would affect our relationship going forward in the future. Our future relationship would be challenged and affected by the effect of the stimulus or something that I have, I have communicated to you that, that, that caused you some kind of harm. Well, you know, life is filled with effects. There are all kinds of effects, triggers in life. Um, it could be some kind of tragic incident, uh, being molested, a bankruptcy, a divorce, some racial incident. These are all effects or triggers in life that affect the way that we live our lives. You know, I sometimes tell folks when I coach and I speak into this space, uh, we've heard the phrase, you know, this individual is just pushing my buttons. And whenever you push my buttons, uh, guys tell me I lose it. I get angry. I know guys that are in prison because someone pushed their button. I tell folks, you need to get rid of your button. It's not about people not pushing your button. If you get rid of the button, they don't have anything to push. We got to begin to deal with effects. And those are the things that affect the, tra the trajectory and the remainder of our lives. And you don't hear many times folks addressing the triggers in our life that need to be dealt with. James, I want you to uh, talk to us about black-on-black -black crime. I want you to talk about the large number of black men in prison. It breaks my heart. Uh, what can you tell us? You know, it breaks my heart as well, um, being a being a black American, 
Um, this is personal to me. This is dear to me. You know, Pat, I've had folks ask me um, that even though I don't, I don't subscribe to, I am, in, I am in no way supportive of the Black Lives Matter organization and the movement itself. But folks ask me, you know, James, do Black Lives Matter? I say absolutely Black Lives Matter because I'm black. My wife is black. My kids are black. Of course, Black Lives Matter to me. But I tell them most importantly, Black Lives Matter to Jesus. And God has a heart for, for people. God has a heart for injustice. Um, and it's something that I believe that, that as, as black Americans like myself, as we return to faith in God, um, we don't need pat critical race theory. We need critical race theology. Critical race theory is some man's idea about what they think is right or wrong or good or bad. But critical race theology has to do with the human race and God's perspective from a theological perspective. I say, Pat, we have a skin problem. We have a sin problem in our society. We don't have a skin problem. It's a sin problem. And because of this zero victim message and even my own understanding of my identity as a Christian black American man, Pat, I don't believe in, in white supremacy because I don't believe in black inferiority. And so these are some of the lessons that are, that are written about in the book that come directly from the heart of God, that come directly from the Scriptures. This book is a tremendous companion guide to read along with the Word of God in terms of how do we apply faith in dealing, in dealing with the, the cultural problems and the challenges that we're facing right now. And I do hope your, your listeners will go to my website at zerovictim.com, zerovictim.com, to pick up a copy and to learn more about the great work that, that we're able to do. James Ward is our guest. The book Zero Victim. James, you you write here about family, and you call it a hotbed for victim mentality. Uh, I need you to expand on that for us. Sure. You know, we all know that that families are are imperfect, and uh, many of the the pains and the injustice that we experience in life comes from our own family members. And I think that um, it's even more traumatic coming from a family member because the people you expect to love you and care for you um, are capable of hurting you more than strangers and people you don't know. Uh, there are so many stories when we talk about uh, sex trafficking and we, we, we deal with young ladies with sex trafficking who are recovering from victim thinking. It started with some kind of molestation. It started with some kind of abuse in the family setting. I did a, uh, a Zoom call just a few weeks ago with uh, some folks that are re-entering society who have been incarcerated, and some of the young ladies who have been involved in prostitution. Um, it started with being molested by a family member, uh, but even just sibling rivalry. One of the most powerful stories of zero-victim thinking in the Bible is the story of Joseph. Joseph was sold into prison by his own family. You know, he was hated, almost killed by his own family. But then you see this story of redemption and reconciliation at the very end of how God used Joseph to restore relationship with his family. But Joseph was not a victim. He did not harbor hatred and unforgiveness in his, in his heart toward his family. And we see the redemptive purposes of God. And so, uh, again, just understanding that many times victimization happens in families, and we have to start with it there. Five lessons about zero victim mentality from the greatest teacher of all. I'm eager to hear about it. Sure. Short version, again, coming from Jesus, the greatest zero-victim thinker who gave us the standard of how to deal with pain, hardship, injustice, victimization in life was the cross of Calvary, the example that Jesus has given us, the practical benefits of what I call practical theology and how it's applied, why America has to be one nation under God that honors the Word of God. Some of the practical benefits, number one, Jesus teaches us don't seek revenge, that when we've been victimized, when we've been hurt, when we've experienced injustice, don't seek revenge. Number two, he teaches us the power of love in terms of loving our enemies. And again, uh, our society teaches us to hate our enemies and to hate people that uh, we perceive that are different than us. But Jesus taught the exact opposite concerning love of our en loving our enemies. Uh, he teaches us to treat people the way that we want to be treated. Um, he teaches us what we call the golden rule, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. He teaches us, number four, how to show mercy, how to show compassion. That's where we get stories like the Good Samaritan, who, let's just say, had a racial problem, uh, culturally speaking, with the guy that he helped. But he, 
you find the Samaritan helping this Jewish man who had been victimized, and Jesus says, go out and do likewise. Be a blessing to those who, who are potentially or should be from a cultural standpoint uh, your, your, in, your enemies racially and culturally. And number, number five, it's true that God does help those who help themselves. There's a very powerful story in John chapter 5 of a man who had been victimized, and Jesus came to him and asked him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made well? You know, Pat, the man never said yes. He never affirmed that he wanted to be healed. And so it starts with a desire in us to say that we want to be better, we want to be healed, I don't want to be a victim, I want to walk in love and walk in forgiveness. When we start with that attitude by faith, God responds to help us when we make the determination that we want to move forward in life. Ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to James Ward, pastor and founder of Insight Church in Skokie, Illinois, author of Zero Victim, Overcoming Injustice with a New Attitude. Go to Barnes & Noble, go up to Amazon and get a copy. And while you're at it, get a copy of my latest book, Revolutionary Leadership. We look at the outstanding leaders in the Revolutionary War period and why we even have a country today. So check them out. Uh, we've got more. We got well, Actually, we've got a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. Folks, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Brad Griffin, our guest in that first segment, talking about three big questions that change every teenager. Quite a chat with him. And remember that key question for teens when you're engaged with them. Tell me more. Good strategy. And then James Ward joined us uh, talking about zero victim, overcoming injustice with a new attitude. He's a pastor and founder of Insight Church in Skokie, Illinois. Folks, um, get your COVID shot. Listen to Uncle Pat. And, and, and Jerry Demings, the mayor, will be so happy. If we can just make Central Florida a lot safer, the, the shots are free, they're effective, they, they help protect you and your family. They're not perfect, but they're pretty close. And uh, just get it done. Uh, we'll see you next weekend on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay tuned all day long to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.